0: Before reading from Mark 10, let's read from Mark 13. Throwing you a little curveball here. In Mark 13, and we'll get there, and probably this will still be appropriate by the time that we get there, Jesus is speaking of things to come. In Mark 13, verse 7, he said, when you hear of war or rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines, as we're reminded this week. These are the beginning of birth pains. Do not be alarmed. Another challenging statement from Jesus in the times that we find ourselves living. Another translation may be do not be surprised, do not be shocked. This is nothing new. In fact, Jesus, in some ways, was quoting from the prophet Jeremiah when he said these things. Jeremiah 51, verse 46. Hear the similarities. Do not lose heart or be afraid when rumors are heard in the land. One rumor comes this year, another the next. There's rumors of violence in the land, of ruler against ruler. For the time will surely come when I will punish the idols of Babylon. Her whole land will be disgraced. Her slain will all lie fallen within her. Then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon. For out of the north, destroyers will attack her, declares the Lord. Biblical prophecy is layered. It's, it's multifaceted. It reveals what happened as we look back in, in many ways, events that have been fulfilled by the prophets. It reveals what will happen in ways that we, we say this is not yet fully completed or fulfilled, but moreover, it, it reveals what always tends to happen. And so when we hear from the prophet Jeremiah speaking to Israel of, of the, the power of their day, the evil oppressive power of their day, Babylon while Babylon has been destroyed and that has been fulfilled, we are right to take that prophecy and apply it forward to all evil nations or regimes oppressing peoples because God's heart has not changed, his heart of justice and his heart of mercy. While we don't press the details to apply into our moment, we, get, we could get caught up in that. We take the heart of that prophecy and we say that's... So even this prophecy of, of Jeremiah applies today when we look into our world And we see oppression and war and fighting. That God will be just and God will will deliver in his way and in his will. That's where some of our our hope comes from. And he is not aloof and he is not unaware of what is happening at any point in history and in, in his world. When Jesus speaks in Mark 13 of these events, many have applied them to the end times we could say we are, we've always been living in the end times. That's the way the early church responded to some of Jesus' promises. It's now extended 2,000 years beyond. They would have been shocked to see that, that, that happen, where Jesus has not come to fulfill and bring initiate his kingdom in power. We are still waiting. In many ways, those words were, were applied and fulfilled in AD 70 when Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed. And that that may have been primarily what he was speaking of, but in that prophecy, we can also apply it today. It is layered because God's heart of justice and mercy has not changed. And so, without pressing the details, it's right to say we take this, we we fast forward it all the way still to the end times when you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, when there are earthquakes and famines, distress and violence and oppression in various places. Take note, be aware, the end has not yet come. But God is aware and God will be just and will accomplish his purposes. So we look to Scripture and find hope in the unchanging God of mercy. He will punish evil and there will be consequences for those who who oppose his will and the way of the kingdom. And yet it's often not in our way and our timing. And ultimately that is a good thing. Where can we join in with the heart of justice? Do not lose heart is the call of Jesus. We are in so many ways so far removed from this war and this conflict, and yet it feels like it touches home at the same time. Do not lose heart. Pray for Ukraine. Pray for all those who have probably lost heart, followers of Jesus who have been praying with desperation and may feel like he's not answering. Pray for those who have lost loved ones, family members, don't know where they are, have lost home security, and have lost all under this oppression. We have, as the Alliance family, we have many missionaries uh, and international workers that have worked in Ukraine for many years. Uh, last report, uh, this just two days ago, is that all are safe, all have moved to safer locations within Ukraine or in Poland or, or elsewhere where they are able. We also have many partnerships of the broader church that are coming that are coming in, I, I just get that you have that picture of the the the, the fire uh, the firefighters in New York in 2001 when everyone is evacuating. They're coming in. There's there's now movements of peoples uh, not just in our network but beyond. It's a global scope coming in where they can, and some, sometimes that's even impossible. But coming in to rescue to help evacuate. Comma services is a branch of of the alliance that serves in these kinds of responses and you can give to their their support it's usually a long sustained support that's what comma services does but they are right now bringing supplies and bringing food and bringing help for evacuation into some of the larger cities in ukraine if you want to give you can support you can go to cmalliance.org that's the alliance uh, website and there is a link there to give to comma services and support that ongoing work but continue to pray. It does touch us all, and it seems a very uncertain and hostile situation. We pray for peace, mercy, justice, and healing. And that seems impossible from our perspective, doesn't it? And yet, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, as we've just been reminded from Mark chapter 10. Let's turn to Mark chapter 10. And see the God that we serve at work. And be reminded of his presence to work with us today. Mark 10, 46 through the end of the chapter, verse 52. They came on to Jericho. And as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd came with them. And a man named Bartimaeus, who was a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth... He began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. So throwing off his off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. We're continuing maybe a mini-series this This broader section extends from the middle of chapter 8 now through the end of chapter 10. And and that's why there's a chapter break here. It looks like that's inserted in the right place. We move on into the story of the triumphal entry. So we'll enter Palm Sunday a little bit early this year. This journey to Jerusalem, this way of the cross began in in chapter 8. And this is a literary inclusio, is what it's called, because the, the journey began with Jesus healing a blind man. And now at the end of chapter 10, it, it ends with Jesus healing a blind man. So when there, in the time when, when the scriptures were written, there were no breaks, no verse numbers, no chapter numbers. Uh, this was a way to highlight something important. And when you see, it's like brackets. When you see these two events, you're meant to then look more closely at what happens within them, what is included inside, and and at least ask, how is it related to that theme? And and it clearly has been, as we've journeyed through, Jesus opening the eyes of the blind. This is what Jesus has come to do, and he's really trying to to do for his disciples, to help them see. So these physical healings of blind men actually seeing are meant to show us of the spiritual work that Jesus is wanting to do for his disciples and really for all. That they would come to see and see rightly. In Mark chapter 8, verse 17, these questions he asked to the disciples are really like the prologue for this whole section. And we've seen it repeatedly, week over week. Jesus asked them, Do you still not see or understand? Of all the time they've been with him and traveling, he's been teaching them, they're still struggling to perceive the kingdom, to understand what he is trying to teach them. Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And those questions we've returned to again and again because Mark would want all hearers of this testimony, this good news message of Jesus to ask these same kinds of questions. Am I any different? Do I actually hear and understand? Do I see and perceive? Do we, to make it a collective, do we remember who our God is, what he has promised, what he will do. We would rightly, humbly ask those questions. How will we answer them? How will we respond and follow Jesus? So throughout this broader section, we continually see those closest to Jesus and those who should have easily received this message and responded, struggling, stumbling. It was was difficult for them. He was breaking so many of their preconceived notions, while we see the, the least likely ones, the last, the ones dismissed or marginalized by society, they're the ones that come to Jesus. He welcomes, he sees, esteems, heals, honors, and they receive and exhibit an incredible faith. They're the ones that are, that are raised up. The last become first. That is a repeated story and encounter of Jesus that we see throughout this section. And once again, Here's a blind man who sees and believes and exhibits this robust faith that will not be denied, it will not be silenced, and Jesus welcomes him, calls him, and he has his life transformed and begins to follow Jesus, to be with him. He calls out with a desperation, he jumps at the invitation, he casts off his cloak, and all of those are meant to be emblematic of what the disciples' response, and any disciple who should follow Jesus, would display. When Jesus asks him what he wanted, he says, I want to see. And I love that prayer. What a simple one. Throughout this series, we've, we've tried to highlight some of the simple prayers, but yet powerful ones, and make those our regular rhythm. We look back to Mark chapter 9, the desperate father with his son that was, was oppressed by the demon who came to Jesus, hoping, believing, really came to his disciples. His disciples could not drive out the demon, could not help him. So he says, Jesus, if you can help me. And Jesus says to him, if I can, don't you believe? And he says this powerful prayer that we've tried to make our own. Yes, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. What a raw, powerful prayer that we really all should resonate with that should probably capture much of our prayers This isn't the only way that we pray, but the heart of it, I think, is beautiful. And Jesus esteems it, honors it, and delivers his son, rescues him. Maybe we would add this prayer. This is all that you hear today and all that is applied. I think it could be powerful in your life that you would pray like this blind beggar, recognizing your own blindness. Jesus asking you, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? And his Prayer is, I want to see. If we could add that prayer to our regular day, I want to see, recognizing our own often spiritual blindness, our own misperceptions of things, in humility, will we come and pray, I want to see. In fact, we might say that this is Mark's primary purpose of the entire letter, that we would come to a place where we'd say, I don't see clearly, and I want to see. God help me. Jesus, give me sight. Give me your perception, kingdom perception, because the the gospel begins with Jesus coming and announcing, the kingdom of heaven is near, so repent. It's the word metanoia in the Greek, which literally means see rightly, perceive correctly, think correctly, change your way of thinking, turn from your former way of thinking to see and perceive rightly, which inspires how you live. Bartimaeus, this blind man, was desperate and was relentless in his pursuit, though trying to be silenced. He knew he was blind. Do we know when we are spiritually blind? Perhaps one of the biggest reasons that our world is where it is with its division and discord, which seems greater than ever, at least in these recent years, Perhaps it's just that we're more aware of it. It's right in our face. It's in our devices and and before us at all moments. But this division and discord may be simply rooted in this arrogant belief that I see rightly or my group. We have the right perspective. We have clarity. And therefore, that must be enforced or defended tooth and nail that others clearly do not see, do not understand. We have beheld. And that, has, that kind of thinking has led to so much abuse, oppression, violence, and death, as we see in our world today. Look at the response of the crowds and perhaps even the disciples. Many rebuked the, this blind man, Bartimaeus, and told him to be quiet. The, the forcefulness in, in the Greek language is essentially shut up, silence, being dismissed, quiet, you're in the way. We know from John chapter 9, when Jesus healed, healed a blind man there, that there was this belief that sickness, and in this case, blindness, was the result of sin. Maybe one's own sin, or even generational sin passed down, so that if you were sick or blind, you deserved it. It was, it was even God-ordained. That was your place. It was, it was your fault. The disciples asked Jesus in John chapter 9, when they encountered a blind man who was seeking his healing from Jesus, the disciples asked and these, are, these are mostly jewish men who grew up with this heritage they asked rabbi jesus who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind that was their assumption it was the result of sin which one was it though does he deserve it or i mean kind of deserve it because of who his parents were or his ancestors were that kind of thinking seems absurd to us uh, Jesus corrects their thinking. He gives them eyes to see. This is John 9, 3. He says, Neither this man nor his parents sin. This has happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. That may not describe every sin or every pain or every suffering, but it is a a reminder of the potential that what God wants to do to to elevate, to highlight his power and his healing in and through us um, in his timing may be the reason that we are enduring what we're enduring. And so in humility, we respond to that. There was a time in much more recent history in our country so where, uh, where teachings were, were passed down and simply not questioned, just like this one was. It was passed down that any sickness or, or, or illness was a result of sin, and that you just accepted that. That's the way that it was. It couldn't be questioned really or challenged. In our recent history, or more recent history in our country, it was taught from generation to generation that that black people were less human than white people. And it was actually a biblical doctrine being passed down from generation to generation that this was their God-ordained place, their rightful place as slaves. That was reinforced in our history. Being Black History Month, this is the example that came to mind of a comparatively absurd teaching that wasn't questioned. And even if you didn't like it, it was the way that it was. Those claiming to be scholars or theologians would work to trace the genealogy of black Africans all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 and Noah's son Ham and his grandson Canaan. And there was this. Crazy event that you can read about in Genesis 9 after the flood in a tent with Noah and his son. And Noah cursed his son and his grandson Canaan and said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. And for generations, theologians claimed that black ancestry ran all the way back through Canaan and to Ham, and therefore, their God ordained place was slavery, claiming to be a biblical doctrine. How absurd. I hope it sounds absurd to our ears today. A complete manipulation of the text, but passed down as biblical. How many similar beliefs have been passed down to us, claiming to be biblical, claiming to be the will of God? I have a growing list. I hope you do also. It's unsettling. It's humbling, but I pray and hope that the dismantling and untangling of it will lead to healing and to hope. Returning to this story, they were justified to oppress, keep oppressed, this blind man who deserved his place. It was God-ordained. Silence, away, dismissed. And as we've seen elsewhere, Jesus has none of it. He welcomes, he calls, he stops, he sees the last and the least and the marginalized and the oppressed. And he welcomes them. He draws them in. And so we pray again, God, open our eyes. We want to see. And Jesus answers this prayer. He will always answer this prayer in humility. God, we want to see, recognizing our own blind spots, knowing that they're still there, asking for his vision and his clarity. This reminds us of the, the children that were coming to Jesus, flocking to Jesus, and the disciples were rebuking them and sending them the way. And Jesus was indignant at that. Let them come to me. Unless you, unless you receive the kingdom like one of these children, you'll never enter into it. There's something about the faith and the desperation uh, of the blind man who knows he's blind and knows his only hope is in Jesus of Nazareth that is elevated and honored that we are rightly convicted by. And at the same time, I'm encouraged to have this kind of faith Mark employs some irony here. The name Bartimaeus. He doesn't name very many people. In fact, in, in the gospel accounts, there aren't many times where the, the man or the, the, the woman healed is named, but often just described. In this case, we notice Bartimaeus, if we do some research, means a son of honor. If this man was born blind, and we're not certain, it's possible that he, blindness came later in his life, but either way, imagine him wrestling with his identity, his name which means son of honor living a life of complete dishonor and disrespect assumption that he deserved his place he deserved his blindness imagine how discouraging that could be or hopeless he could have been felt or wrestled if his if his parents gave him the name had he been born blind what would that mean for him in finding his identity wondering if he was just being mocked or cursed by his heritage, by, by God, how easy it would have been for him to give up, just give in and yield. Being blind in that, in that culture was incredibly difficult. Not that it's easy today, but incredibly difficult. Your only means of living were either a family that would take care of you or to be a beggar and to simply survive. Jesus honors him, sees him, elevates him. He heals him with a word. Now that's honor because we saw earlier in the the chapter, he spit, Jesus spit to heal. He didn't spit on his eyes or rub mud together. He just healed with a word. That was honor. Thank you, Jesus. Interesting though, I think critical for us to understand, the Greek word for be healed is sozo. And we've seen that word again and again in this story. Sozo is a complex greek word just like many words that we don't have a good english word for, for it so it's translated different ways most commonly it's translated save salvation has has its root jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost he came to seek and to sozo but it's much more than just being saved as if from from this earth to heaven or from hell to heaven to find our salvation. And God, is much deeper than that. It's richer. And so it's, it's rightly translated healed. But it has this idea of wholeness, rightness, completeness, the way we were created to be, God's rescue, God's deliverance. It, it encompasses all of that. So when Jesus says, your faith has so you, it's much more. In this case, it's not just physical healing. It's it's included with it as a spiritual healing, a spiritual rightness. He's becoming who he was made to be. Jesus is restoring his rightful identity. And for those of us who have been following Jesus for a little while now, maybe we should continue to pray daily. Jesus, I want to see. Jesus, I need your sozo. I need your salvation wholeness, healing again today. It's a repeated prayer that's ongoing. We often find ourselves praying ultimately about lesser things. They may seem like big things, but they're not ultimate things. We pray for health and safety, for ourselves, for our family, for our loved ones. We pray for God's rescue, His deliverance, His provision. We may pray for prosperity and abundance, pray for security We pray for things like good jobs, relational harmony, uh, reparation of relationships. We pray for our kids to succeed in school, to make good choices, to get good jobs. These are big things, but they're not ultimate things. And if we would start praying in, in maybe some of the more impassioned yet simple ways that we see modeled and esteemed in Scripture, perhaps we would pray less about these other things. Not that they wouldn't be on our lips or on our hearts because we are certainly present people entrusted with many things and concerned about many tangible, real things. But if we begin with prayers like, Jesus, I need to see today with your kingdom perception. I need my scales to come off my eyes. I need my heart to be softened by you. I need to get out of, out of my will and into yours again today. Jesus, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. I have very little hope and and, and, and trust in, in bigger things in this world and in authorities and rulers and nations and doctors. Help me, Lord, see and perceive your kingdom. Perhaps if we prayed with that kind of desperation for, for Jesus' vision, touch, healing, and deliverance, and even more for Jesus himself, that we would be with him, that we would know him, that we would see him. Perhaps it would shift and shape the way that we pray these other big things. Contrast Bartimaeus' prayer here with James and John, just a a few verses earlier in chapter 10. You remember James and John came to Jesus asking of him something. They wanted to sit at his right and left in his kingdom. They were asking for, for really power or prestige, honor to be esteemed. And remember, Jesus asked them when they came to him with a request, the very same question he asked Bartimaeus. We're supposed to notice that in the past. A little more difficult when we take weeks and weeks to go through a passage. We're supposed to notice it. The same same exact question. What do you want me to do for you? And the contrast here as we conclude this section is meant to jump out at us. James and John, his very disciples, the one who had been been entrusted with everything, had been close to Jesus for years, say something about their own self, their self-centered request. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. Jesus asked this, this blind man, Bartimaeus, who, who had every reason to have no hope in life, what do you want me to do for you? And his answer is, I want to see. And essentially, Jesus' answer is, yes. Yes, that is the prayer. That I esteem and honor. You are so Be well. And he actually says, go. Go on your way. Be delivered. Be free. As we've been singing about this morning. But this man, Barnabas, clearly is desiring, has been desiring something more than just physical sight because he follows him on the way. And that's how this broader section ends. That phrase, on the way, on the road, he's with him. He's united with Jesus' mission and vision. Where the disciples have said, no, Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. This will never happen to you. You will not be arrested. You will not be crucified. They're standing in the way of Jesus. This last and least likely one goes on the way, he's with him, he's front of that line I wonder if he was one of the 120 waiting in the upper room perhaps likely, he becomes in this day one of his disciples not just a man who can physically see but a man who is starting to see spiritually and perceive rightly his posture toward Jesus should convict us, should encourage us, if we're humble we'll see ourselves in him, I hope I hope we're inspired by him, while his circumstances couldn't have been any more difficult in life. And these are hard comparisons, and I'm not asking us to ultimately do that. What we might be walking through, what God might be asking you to walk through, maybe the hardest challenge you've ever faced in life. You can always find someone that you wouldn't trade places with. That's not the point. God is not asking us to walk that journey. But if we find ourselves in a very difficult place, a hard place. Where it seems like everything is against us. We have many reminders that God sees us, that Jesus sees us, that he welcomes us, he esteems us, he wants to heal us and deliver us. And perhaps at times it feels like Jesus has passed us by. Perhaps he's been there all along, calling to us, inviting us, and it's just now that we're hearing him. You're within reach of his voice today. He says to you, he says to all, who know that they're blind, who know that they're in need, who know that they're in hard circumstances, come, call this one to me. Invite them. So cheer up, as the NIV translates it. Up on your feet. Jesus of Nazareth is calling you. And he's saying to you, what do you want me to do for you? With humility, would we respond in the same way? Jesus, I just want to see I just need you. I just need your touch today. This contrast I hinted at that we would come back to. He jumps up. Now, quick movements for a blind man carried risk in and of themselves. He jumps up. He's unrestricted. He throws off his cloak, which is an interesting thing to say. As if something, something hindered him from coming to Jesus. He throws it off. Now, in that day, a blind beggar, his cloak may have been his, own, his primary possession. It might have been his life for protection against the scorching sun, for, for protection at night if he was sleeping on the streets. He throws it off. It's meant to contrast, I believe, the rich young man earlier in this story who came to Jesus also saying, Jesus, I want to inherit eternal life. I want you to do something for me. And Jesus says, go sell everything. And this man gets up slowly, walks away from Jesus, clinging to his possessions. The contrast of this blind man, jumping up, drawing near, throwing off this, anything that would hinder him is meant to be noticed and, and seen and esteemed for all who are feeling last and least and oppressed, for all who have questioned Even if it sounds absurd to our ears to return back to that thought, all who have questioned, God, is this happening to me because of something I've done? Because of my sin? Or because of the sin of my parents? And while that can be a a humble question to present to say, Lord, is there in the heart of I want to see, I want to confess, I want to repent, I see, I do see my own sin. The enemy would use that to crush us, to bring shame, to bring distance, to say to you, you're not good enough. You're not loved. You'll never be loved. You'll never be called by Jesus. And that's simply antithetical to the gospel, It's antithetical to the heart of God for the one humble who says, I want to see, I want to draw near. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of Kings is calling to us today. I don't know why for some reason it takes years for certain scales to fall from our eyes. They're called blind spots for a reason after all. Other times, God seems to just turn on the lights, flip them on. Perhaps today he'll give us some of his perspective that we've desperately needed. Sometimes I've been been living feeling like there's something on the tip of my tongue that I'm not seeing or perceiving or understanding. Do you ever feel that just in life in general? Praying, God, I want to see. Sometimes he he doesn't reveal all that we continue to draw near to him, stay with him, follow him, because it's for him to know not for us. And we are meant to grow in trust. Other times we just need to come to a pause and a posture, I believe, with truly open heart to receive. Sometimes we define what the answer must be and we're saying, God, answer it this way. And we simply need to say, whatever way you answer, your will be done. I want to see your perspective through your eyes. The Holy Spirit is here with us today. We don't get to draw near to Jesus in the flesh. He is returning one day, but the Holy Spirit has been sent. The Spirit of truth, John 16, 13, whose primary purpose is that we would see, to help us to see the ways of the kingdom. Jesus promised us, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth he will not speak of his, on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. He will reveal what is yet to come. Kingdom perception, which leads to kingdom living. May we add this simple prayer to our daily prayers. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I want to see Collectively, we could pray, even as we respond in singing, we want to see, make us a people who perceive the kingdom, who walk in it, open our eyes to your kingdom today and in the days to come, we pray.